The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast, Dr. Taz. Superwoman Wellness. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of the Dr. Taz Show, where, you know, I'm determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. And today we're going to talk about something very near and dear to my heart, Ayurveda and fertility. Some of you know that I'm trained in Ayurveda and it's a part of my medical practice. But today I bring you Heather Grish, who's the author of the Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility, which I believe I have lying right here and have been looking at. She bridges together the world's of both conventional and alternative medicine to help women and men heal their physical and emotional lives. She's on the board of directors for the National Ayurvedic Medical Association and has consulted with doctors, governments, and even insurance companies. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I today am pleased to bring her on the show. We're gonna tackle Ayurveda, fertility, and more, but welcome to the show, Heather. What inspired you to get into Ayurveda? Oh my gosh. It, it's, it was a windy path there for sure, because I found it later in my life. Uh, you know, I don't know where and you, where you were in your life when you found it, but I was in my early, I guess, early to mid thirties, uh, when I even first heard the word Ayurveda, I think uh-huh. my, my parents probably still have difficulty pronouncing it. My parents thought I had joined a cult when I was in oh. Ayurveda school. <laughs> my dad just asked me the other day, she's like, what's integrative medicine? I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. So I, uh, you know, for many years, I actually worked in the health insurance industry. And so I was in charge of product development for health insurance company and thought I was doing great work and getting people access to healthcare. I was working on Obamacare and things like that. Mm -hmm. And when I was in my sort of early to mid thirties, I went through this, I hadn't had children yet. I was sort of trying to find myself. I started teaching yoga, went through this whole like new, you know, thing as many women do when they start teaching yoga, had my own little eat, pray, love moment at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then the path that I was on, I studied yoga and then I studied yoga therapy and became a yoga therapist. And I started teaching yoga therapists. And then when I found yoga therapy was when I first heard about Ayurveda. And I was about 32 at that point. And immediately when I first learned about it, it was just like a gut punch. And my little voice in my head just said, why doesn't anybody know about this? And I immediately, it just immediately tapped me into something that felt like it'd been missing for a long time. And so I just kept following it going, what is this weird thing that is completely impractical. There's no job description. It's not even a licensed profession in the United States. Why do I need to know about it? And I had my corporate job, but I studied and I entered into a master's program on the side while I was doing that. And then at a certain point I left the corporate job and stuff. But for me, Ayurveda was like just this missing thing in my life where I feel, you know, I know you also study Chinese medicine. For me, Ayurveda just tapped me into something that felt like it was missing. And because of the time of my life where I was studying it about, I hadn't had a child yet myself. And I was thinking about having a child that was a critical point for me to be going through that educational experience because I was thinking, am I going to be a mother? I was already at that point in my mid thirties and I was starting to worry about it. Like many mid thirties women, professional women do, or otherwise, um, who haven't had children yet. And so it was on my mind a lot when I was in school. 
Uh, but Ayurveda, you know, like it's such an amazing science and considering that it's so ancient and it's been around for so long in India and we're only beginning to learn about it here in the U.S. I, I'm actually preparing to interview one of my mentors um, tomorrow. And I was sitting here thinking how different for him to grow up in India where Ayurveda is this sort of more well-known thing that's part of the fabric of the culture there. Whereas here in the United States, so many people don't actually know what it is. And uh, so for me, it felt like I was uh, swimming against the stream a little bit when I started studying Ayurveda. Well, you know, the journey into Ayurveda, many of us get there through a personal journey. That's what landed me in Chinese medicine too, just my own health issues. Mine was a little bit earlier than yours. It was my late 20s when I was starting to have a lot of my problems and a lot of mine uh, were very hormonally based. And I think what's so fascinating about Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine too, is that they are able to really get to the root of these issues that conventional medicine will often say like, well, you know, take this drug or do this one thing to fix this system and not really tie it in into the network of the body or, or the overall health of the body. You deal with a lot of uh, fertility and infertility issues in women as an Ayurvedic practitioner. And tell us a little bit about, about that particular problem or issue that we're seeing today, because more and more women, I think, are having trouble getting pregnant. You know, more and more women are looking for alternatives because we are starting to understand the devastating consequences of IVF that have on our bodies and what it means for our long-term health. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing with women and why they're having so many issues getting pregnant. Yeah, I mean, certainly st statistics will tell us something. The statistics will tell us that women are having babies later. Uh, the statistics will tell us that we're having fewer babies than we did in 1960, that, you know, say we're having half the babies that we had in 1960. We also have a really big population, um, so which we didn't have in 1960. We didn't have nearly as many people. So the back of my mind, I'm always wondering, well, do we need to have so many kids, you know? But the problem is that once a woman decides she wants to have a kid, get the hell out of her way. <laughs> so I actually think that's the biggest problem um, is that once we desire that and it doesn't happen immediately for us, our threshold for dealing with the unknown, our threshold for dealing with the surprises that life does or does not, you know, bring us just that the unknown factor, our threshold's really low for that. Um, we as women have gotten very good at making stuff happen. You know, we can get great jobs. We can do great in school. And, um, but fertility is a different animal because we can't control it. Right. And that's very frustrating. Now that's the psychological piece of it. There's also physical pieces uh, obviously, you know, women, are they less healthy than they were, you know, in 1960? Well, I don't know. Everybody was smoking and drinking in 1960, right? So it's hard to tell if we're healthier, but we know that, and I don't know, I don't have digestive, you know, I don't have gut data from the right. 1960s or 70s, but we do know that anywhere from like half to 70 something percent of people are experiencing regular digestive issues. Right. 
And if we're talking about fertility, the way I look at fertility, I look at it as this, it's sort of a byproduct of health and health is a byproduct of proper digestion and nutrition and assimilation. So if our bodies are not essentially, we're getting lots of great stuff, we're taking lots of great stuff in, we're not turning it into something in a beneficial way. It's creating all sorts of problems. We're not digesting it. We're having digestive issues. We're having metabolic issues. It's causing plaques in our bodies, whatever the thing that's happening. And that ultimately will also affect fertility. So I think probably stress and digestion has a huge piece um, with it as well, which is interesting because before the pandemic, we knew everybody was so stressed out, you know, commuting, driving to work, all the ambitions that everybody has, right? That rajasic sort of overly ambitious state that yeah. many of us found ourselves in at that time. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, stay home. Yeah. And if you talk to some women, they're actually really having like more peace right now because yeah. the chaos has Stop. decreased in yeah. their life. And so where it's going, I don't know, but where, where it's, where it is now, where it was before the pandemic was that people were having more and more difficulty. They're waiting longer. And also our patience is thinner. Mm -hmm. So when I was 35 years old and thinking about, Oh crap, I haven't had a kid yet. The thought of me doing IVF was not even an option. Like mm -hmm. in my head, I just said, and I knew it was available. I knew people were doing it. I knew people who'd done it, you know, and I just didn't, I knew I didn't want to do that. And I knew it was never going to be an option for me. So I said, if I don't get pregnant naturally, if it doesn't happen naturally, then I'm just, it's not in the cards for me. That was the approach that I took to it. And I said, let me make sure that I love my life so much that regardless of what happens with this baby thing, I'm just happy. I can, you know, dedicate my time to some helping some population or starting a business or whatever I have to do. Very, the patience is thin for a lot of women. And I had these little thoughts creep in too. Do I want to you know, go get my, I did have hormones checked and stuff like that when I was in my late thirties, you know, you have to put your mind at ease yeah. uh, with certain things, but uh, I just knew that wasn't path. That path wasn't for me. And that's what I wrote about in the book. My, I wrote about the natural path. However, I will say that I do work with quite a few women who are going through fertility treatments as I'm sure you do as well. And I actually don't think it's, you know, you can't do, Ayur, I don't, I think you can still do Ayurveda um, and Chinese medicine, these other treatments while yeah. you do them, uh, for sure. And they're obviously, like you were saying earlier, there are a lot of side effects from the medical assisted route. And I think that we can help in between the phases that they go through in those treatments, yeah, we can really step yeah. in and like help kind of cleanse things out so that they're receptive to that next event that's going to happen in the pathway. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's not clear where it's going to go. Some, you know, for, for women's health in the future and for fertility in the future, there is also this very mysterious connection between death and birth. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you, and I wrote, I mentioned this in the book and I, I found this data point, I don't know, six years ago or something. And it really surprised me as I was looking at birth rates in different countries and 
you know, Yemen and Syria and Afghanistan and sort of war-torn countries or countries with famine or countries where you wouldn't think there's a whole lot of stability, like where you would, your logical mind would say, that's not a safe place to have a baby. Right. You know, your logical mind would say that, but the birth rates are really the highest in the world. Yeah. And yet, well, I don't know, you know, I have some of my woo-woo friends have certain theories about that, you know, that the, the something about the souls moving around and, you know, having to, when they leave, they, they have to come back or something like that. But I think it, maybe there's a piece of that. I'm not really super connected with those kinds of dimensions, but I think that there's something about when you touch your primal being where there's something about. I don't know if it's the fear of death or feeling emotions flow through you, feeling the effects of a loss in your body mm-hmm. and letting that loss pass through you. And then allowing that leaves a space for something else to fill inside of you. Um, that's, that's at least, that's what my gut tells me. That's what, that's the visceral sense that I get about it. Um, I don't have any sort of none of my teachers ever taught me anything about right, that, right. Or, you know, that that's what it feels like to me. Um, and that's sort of, I think that's one of the reasons that I, I frequently do fasting with women during this process, because it's about um, getting in touch with that sense of loss, mm-hmm. you know, getting in touch with that, the non-grasping mechanisms that that being empty that receptivity for the new and things like that and if we we get everything we want we have everything we want and all the spaces in our house are filled and every and our hair looks perfect and everything looks perfect and you know there is there a little is there a space in there for something new to come in interesting get inside thought about it that way. So talk to us about this idea of the modern women having kind of uh, piggybacking off what you just said, having that primal mind and having an intellectual mind. And I would almost argue that our intellectual mind has served us well from a career and maybe even a financial standpoint. I wonder how much it's disturbing us when it comes to very feminine issues like fertility. So talk to us a a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, every thought you have has an energy to it. And literally if I, if I sit next to somebody who's thinking a lot, I can feel, I can feel that I can feel the bouncing. Mm -hmm. It's like an energy bouncing through their head. So if you have a thought, there's a chemical action taking place there, there's an action taking place. The brain uses so much energy. So the smarter we are, there's more energy. The, the more we're using that brain, there's more energy going there, right? Now, a lot of what I'm talking about is consciousness. And that's really, I think when we talk, the way I wrote about the intellectual and the primal and other people have wrote about this in similar ways, it's sort of consciousness or subconsciousness or the conscious mind versus the wisdom of the body. And you know, even modern science tells us that 95% of what's operating us on a regular basis is subconscious, not conscious. So in reality, we're being run by this kind of pre-programmed or already programmed 
these tapes that have already been going for a long time and the conscious mind thinks it's in charge and the conscious mind thinks it's got control over everything. And certainly if we're, you know, kicking ass in our jobs and doing well in school and, you know, getting promoted at work and landing the deal or, you know, getting the website up or all the things that we're sort of accomplishing, um, that that's all happening in the, in the conscious realm, but there's so much happening in the, the other realm that is difficult to, you know, we, when we dream and when we sleep, we get a taste of that realm. Uh, we may be able to tap into it. There are other ways that people have developed to, to tap into that. Artists have some pretty interesting ways to get in, involved in that dimension or things like yoga, anything that you do with body to get more body awareness, to tap more into your emotional body. So there's, you know, there's certainly an emotional body component to it because when you're sitting there thinking about being effective and all of those things, you're not thinking about your emotions because your emotions require time to process. Right. right. Similar to like uh, in Ayurveda, I don't know if you came across the ve the word vega, yeah. which is like the urges, right? That you're never supposed to stop once you once they start. So one of the urges is, uh, you know, sneezing or peeing or cry, you know, crying is one of the urges. And that's a function of your primal body. Mm -hmm. You're, you, you have an urge to cry maybe because you have a thought or you saw something sad, but once that urge comes up, it's a primal thing happening in the primal body. And there's a physiological thing that's happening. And if you, if your conscious mind intervenes and says, nope, not okay to cry right now because your yeah, boss yeah. is right there, or you don't want to look like a wimp in front of your boyfriend or whatever the, that tape is that comes in to your head, then you're actually blocking that energy. And so sometimes the conscious mind and the subconscious mind or the primal and the intellectual are not on the same page. And I think this even comes up sometimes in, in relationships. So your brain tells you, your mind tells your conscious mind tells you, I got to have this guy, you know, with this kind of job, who's from this kind of family or whatever the sort of checklist is that we put together. Mm -hmm. And then you, you walk by somebody and your body starts telling you something different, right? You know, and hopefully you're able to, uh, get those two levels on the same page so that you pick the guy that, you know, has all of those things, but sometimes the body, you know, wants something that the mind does not want. Fascinating. So how do we get more in touch? Cause I think the disconnect, even when it comes to fertility is this disconnect between the primal and the intellectual, right? So how do we as women get back in touch with that primal sense? Cause you're right. You know, how many times a day do I, I'm thirsty. Oh, you'll get water later. I'm tired. Oh, you can sleep later. I'm, uh, what's another one? Um, you know, I'm angry, you know, whatever it is, like, like we suppress, suppress, ignore, you know, because the mind is overriding kind of every primal need. How do you find balance between those two things so that they're more unified, you know, and that you can then, first of all, feel better, live better, but then even open up the channels of fertility, because this is essentially opening up energy which in Chinese medicine, we say the Ren or the conception vessel needs to be opened up. Ayurveda has its own terminology for that. You know, what would you tell women listening? Like what, what are some practical things that they could do? Yeah. I mean, meditation is obviously a great place. Uh, and I think many different things are a form of meditation, whether it's journaling or even a form of prayer that you can do. 
One of the practices I love that I wrote a little bit about in the book, but not too much. Um, I love a, a chanting practice. Hmm. And it's also interesting because in the Ayurvedic text, in one of them, Charaka Samhita, they talk about how like the indicators of fertility, what the indicators of fertility are, how you know somebody's fertile. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the it's not like is her cervix in a certain position. <laughs> it's not the stuff that we're checking for, by the way. And another in law tells me it's my hip size. So anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyhow yeah how she looks in that dress um you know so one of the the indicators of fertility in the ayurvedic text which is kind of cool is that she has a good quality voice Mm. which is kind of interesting because voice is such a subjective thing because you could hear some some voice you know you could hear somebody's voice and think it sounds like music but that same person could hear that voice and think it sounds like you know somebody scratching a chalkboard So I think it's probably a very particular thing, but as a woman to, I guess, if you're going to be judged as by somebody as, are they going to be detecting a good quality voice or, you know, that sort of primal stuff that is being picked up on. You don't want to sit there and go, I want to make my voice sound good for everybody around me. You want to make sure your voice sounds like a way where it feels amazing inside your body. Because why would you try to do anything different than that and make your life more difficult? So um, one of the practices that I do with my clients and that I wrote a little bit about in the book is to help women. And by the way, I'm not a singer. So, (laughs) you know, I, when I say that I do this, it's not, uh, I'm not a professional singer or anything, just chanting and like sitting alone in your house and if you're just saying om, go for om, but maybe make other noises like yeah. like o or ah or oo, and then just see where it goes. Because there's a way that you can focus on your voice coming out of your body. There's a way that you can focus on it, which is I want to make sure everyone around me likes the way I sound. Right. Or you could focus on, I want to feel um, I want it to feel amazing as it moves through my body or maybe you could focus on both even so you know I just think that that's an amazing place to be because the you know the baby that is meant to be your child doesn't need you to be anybody than who you really are and so to me I find that to be an interesting way to uh, transcend the the social conditioning piece. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I think chanting, singing, meditation, yoga, prayer, like these are all things that force us out of here to a certain extent, right? You said fasting even, would fasting be in that? Oh yeah. I mean, so. fasting is not for everyone for sure, uh, but it, the word fasting in Sanskrit is upavasa and it for, to go without food. And it means to stay close to one's soul. Mm, I love that. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool, to stay close to your soul. Uh, you know, we, I could talk to you about all of this for probably another hour, but I don't want to leave uh, this discussion with you without kind of going over the four fertility factors in Ayurveda. What are the four things that they really pay attention to? You mentioned it, but let's go over that for everybody listening because they're different. 
from yeah. some of our Western markers. It's not all, it's not all AMH and Ayurveda. So tell yeah, us exactly. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what it is in Ayurveda. Yeah. So Ayurveda is poetry. The Ayurvedic texts are written in poems. This is a medicine that speaks to your heart. And that's another way that we get out of the head. Uh, so the way that there's a, essentially a metaphor used for fertility in the classical Ayurvedic texts. And I, you know, packaged it up and called it the four fertility factors, but this has been written about since 600 BC. Mm -hmm. And so there's, it's essentially a gardening reference and everybody's doing that more now in the pandemic, everybody's planting right. things. And so maybe some good things are coming out of this as well. And we can get more in touch with this, our connection to the earth. We've got four fertility factors. The first one is the seed. So the egg and the sperm, just, you know, common sense, they're both seeds and they right. get, you know, the egg and then the sperm fertilizes it. And then that, that's the first factor. And the second factor is that'll happen when the time is right. So the timing, the, uh, the, the sort of seasonal factors, the time and season is uh, one way to look at it. And it's funny because when we talk about animals, when it's their time to mate, we say they're in heat right. or in season, right? So it's sort of that, that season for fertility. And for women, it's, you know, when you're ovulating and for women it, or just after you're ovulating and for women, it's uh, during the phase of life where your body is more able to withstand the hard work that birthing and growing a child requires, you know, unfortunately we have a biological clock, but there's some benefits to having a cutoff on that too, you know, so that we're safe in our, uh, if we were trying to have a baby at 60, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, so we got the seed and then we, it's the timing for those seeds. You're not going to plant spinach at certain times of the year. You're going to plant spinach in the soil at the time of year where spinach is supposed to be planted. Mm. So I have some growing on my deck right now and it took, it was, it was a pain that one, you know, every seed has its own requirements for what it's going to grow in too. So uh, you've got the third fertility factor, which is the field. And you could think about that in most literal terms is the uterus. Mm -hmm. So the word kshatra means the uterus in Sanskrit. And that is the, the place where the, obviously the you know, zygote will implant and uh, where the baby will, the placenta and everything will end up forming inside the uterus and the baby grows there. And so that field is what receives all of the fourth fertility factor, which is the water. So the blood, the nutrients, everything comes as nourishment in water for a baby. You know, the baby gets, you know, is not breathing air outside of the body. It's not, you know, putting chocolate peanut butter cups in its mouth <laughs> you know it's it's getting mommy's liquid in her body and nourishment and love so there's the seed there's the season there's the field and then there's the water and there's a few of those that you don't have control over like you don't have control over the season that's an environmental factor right you have to pay attention to the season and adjust accordingly or the seed you can't really you know, you, you, you're, you, you were given, you know, your follicles, you can take care of the vessels where the follicles are and things like that. But there's a, you know, certain things you can and cannot affect with that. 
And then the field though, you can affect. I think that's the, the field and the water are the biggest areas of opportunity for people to affect their fertility and where I spend a lot of my focus. So the field lives, that uterus lives inside of a woman's body and is affected by, you know, oftentimes people don't even have a problem with their reproductive system, but they have a problem somewhere else in their body. And then that can cause a fertility issue. Mm -hmm or there's stress in your environment. So everything is sort of converging in this uterus, but it's all being affected by a greater field, the house, the community that you live in, the conditions of the soil on the planet that your food is grown in, everything affects your uterus, um, some closer and some farther away, but that's all part of the field. And then that water, you know, when you choose to give yourself love, how you nourish your body is how you're going to nourish your baby. Cause that's how it all, you know, starts forming. So those are the, and it's really pretty. It's like, it's just so poetic to think about it that way. Right. And it's, it just makes your heart sing to think about it that way instead of, you know, getting, yeah. Like, Oh, is my FSH here? And my, like you were saying, yeah, I love it. You know, there's so much more we can talk about from this book. And the book, again, is the Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility. When was this released, out of curiosity? It was uh, May of 2000, right mm-hmm. in the middle of the pandemic, when everybody's afraid to have babies. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, I love it. So, uh, you know, if folks want to get in touch with, touch with you, Heather, what's the best way for them to do that? And I'm assuming this is sold everywhere books are sold, correct? Yes. The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility is sold on Amazon, where a lot of people shop. It's sold on Barnes and Noble, and it's also sold on Bookshop. And you can learn about the book or me and my work that I do with people on my website, which is www.heathergrish.com. My last name is G-R-Z-Y-C-H.com. It's not an easy one. (laughs) you'll have to look at Dr. Taz's show notes probably to get that one. No worries. We'll put it all there for all of you. And thank you again for joining us on this topic. We could probably do another hour on it. So I might have my team reach back out to you, but this is such an important topic for so many of you out there. We talk to women all the time, struggling to get pregnant, not understanding why they're not getting pregnant. And also we didn't even have time to dive into the kind of the psychological aspect of some of this too. So still a lot to cover when it comes to this particular topic. Uh, But for today, thank you for joining me, Heather. I appreciate it. And for everybody else watching and listening, thank you for joining this episode of the Dr. Taz Show. Remember we're on Spotify, so please rate and review it and share it with your friends. And I will see you all next time.